Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. And if you give a shit, well, you've probably had a few moments where the enormity of what's in front of us has challenged your mental health in some way. I can't imagine there's many folks listening to this show who've never felt the heaviness of our climate future, of our climate present. I mean, I certainly have, and I'm a privileged white man with a podcast, right? Who didn't grow up inundated with air pollution or threatened by the rising seas, by the rains, by the heat. I don't farm for my own food like billions of other people. But the comfort gained by these privileges, the inverse of all of this means my footprint, if you will, is enormously more than the people who are already suffering the most, who will suffer the most. I really wasn't aware of that for a very long time. And reconciling it all was and continues to be a, a process. There's a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, a lot of shame about that shame, a lot of furious action. I mean, we're here, right? Running parallel to all those emotions is this dread of what's being done out there about the lack of action and for the people who are taking action on the front lines of the future, giving it their all. I'm lucky in this job to have made some incredible friends, friends who are in the fight, who I can text whenever I want, whenever I need about my dread, about some iceberg falling off. And a lot of folks don't have those friends. And believe me, dumping your deepest climate worries on the wrong folks is one way to scare off any friends or partners you might already have. But as Dr. Catherine Hayhoe says, we have to talk about it. But not just what's happening and what to do about it, but how we're dealing with it, how angry we are, how shamed we are, how scared we are, despondent, how guilty we are, how fired up we are, how we can recognize that if we're privileged enough to be able to make that space, how to deal with it, how to move forward for ourselves, together, for the planet, for the people who will come after us. My guest in episode 136 is Dr. Britt Ray. Britt is the author of the fantastic new book, Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. It's an impassioned generational perspective on how to stay sane amid climate disruption. Britt has a PhD in science communication from the University of Copenhagen, and she's the author of The Rise of Necrofauna, The Science, Ethics, and Risks of De-Extinction. She's hosted a bunch of podcasts, radio, and TV programs with the BBC and CBC. She's a TED resident. She is currently a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, because sure, why not both? where she researches the mental health impacts of climate change on young people. Britt is also the author of Gendred, the first newsletter that shares wide-ranging ideas for supporting emotional health and psychological resilience in the climate and wider ecological crisis. I have learned so much from Britt of late, and her book is a tremendous source of empathy and courage. And I think you will find both of us bearing more than a bit of our souls and our beliefs in this conversation, and hopefully some ways we can all cope and build a radically more supportive world for everyone. You can listen to our conversation at the link below, 
or just search Important Not Important anywhere you listen to podcasts. A reminder, you can send feedback or questions about this episode to me at questions at importantnotimportant.com. Links to anything we talk about are in the show notes. And if you want to rep your shit giver status, you can find sustainable t-shirts, hoodies, and a variety of coffee delivery vessels in our store at importantnotimportant.com slash store. Here we go. Britt Ray, welcome to the show. Thank you, Quinn. Good to be here. All right. Well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes here. Britt, <laughs> I'd like to start with one question we ask everybody. It is, I think, reveals something deeper about all of us, also sets a tone for being a little ridiculous. Don't be afraid to to laugh at it. Most people do. So instead of saying, Britt, what's your entire life story? I like to ask, why are you vital to the survival of the species? Oh, my goodness. Grandiose. We'll get That's going right. here. Well, these days, my work is focused on very existential questions. It's Mm -hmm. about how people are going to be able to protect their sanity in a world on fire, which is increasingly traumatic to vulnerable populations in the line of climate disasters and those who are simply aware of what's going on and the lack of moral clarity in our leadership to address the problem of the climate and wider ecological crisis, which creates chronic eco-anxiety and a loss of sense of security in the world as we face this daunting future with many bullets in the gun, climate just being one of them. So I'd say something vital about my work is that I'm looking at those scary developments Mm -hmm. and trying to get ahead of the ball to work with others in creating mental health protection strategies that are able to be widely shared and freely accessible. That's amazing and is going to be increasingly needed. So thank you for pacifying me and uh, <laughs> and, and answering that one. It's always funny. You never know. We get people who, who cackle at it and then reveal something so illuminating or they're just like, I'm not. And that's also awesome. You never know. So let me, apropos of your amazing book and how thoughtful it is and how well-researched and cited and and uh, empathetic it is and what you just described as to how you feel you fit into all of this madness. Let me ask you this question. How are you? I am feeling really grateful these days, uh, like in the last couple of days, just because I'm enjoying my six-month-old baby so much and laughing with him all the time and having these moments where my partner and I look across the room and are just like, you know, like, look at this creature. And this is a whole new thing in my life because I, you know, it's the first time being a mom and exploring these little bursts of what that means for your day-to-day existence and then reflecting on it in a deep way has been how I've been reflecting on where I'm at over the weekend. And now it's Monday. But of course, um, you know, it's been extremely sad and just enraging to watch what's going on in Ukraine in recent weeks and listen to reportage from the ground of, you know, innocent people's lives that are being ripped apart in this humanitarian disaster that is sickeningly driven by fossil-fueled capitalism and patriarchal menace. It's been tough. So there's a tension there. And I think that that's the tension that's been around for a long time now, pandemic climate research, war, 
Yeah, there's a lot. Let me ask you this. This gratitude, obviously, uh, well, not maybe not obviously. I mean, there's uh, so much that can happen after a baby, obviously. There's all sorts of depressions and stress and we're tired and all these things. Is your gratitude something you have? There's so much out there these days, and I've subscribed to a lot of it, about really making an effort to practice gratitude in the sense of like, Stopping, trying to recognize it, trying to, you know, sit in it for a moment. Is that something you've always been good at? Is that something you've tried to work on? Or has it just been like, holy shit, this baby's incredible? I'm really not good at that. I want to be better at it. I know that having a gratitude journal is a healthy practice or ensuring that every night when you go to sleep, you reflect on three good things that happen in the day. And when you wake up in the morning, you do it again. Those people are amazing. Mm -hmm. I am too forgetful. It's not even that I don't want to do it. I just forget that that's even an option to me when I'm living through my life and zooming to sleep and zooming awake, etc. Yeah. So no, with our little dude, it's more about being struck by his awesomeness and then being very present. Someone described parenting as an aggressive form of meditation because every moment is forcing you to be present, (laughs) very present moment connected to the baby and its needs. So I think it's just that impulse has an effect on me where he does something and then I'm grabbed in the moment and realizing that the feeling is gratitude. Yeah. Sure. Wait till he starts walking and then it's an entirely different form of uh, being present because they try to kill themselves every 30 seconds. It's uh, it's an adventure. Oh, my gosh. How do Um, people do it? I love that. Uh, I think you just lock them in like you build the baby gate things and then you or the bouncers and you just leave. (laughs) That's what our third kid. I mean, this is like total standard third kid. We put him in the little. I'm going to get arrested. Put him in the little bouncer and we got to go. I had three kids under three at one point. Like I got to go get two other kids out of cribs and we come back and we're like, oh, my God, you've been in your bouncer for like an hour he's like i get it you got a lot going on like it's (laughs) like it's too much i'm happy to just play with these things oh nice cool kid he's a pretty good sport we're lucky really into fairness which is interesting uh but i think it's just because he's like how come they get to do this and i don't anyways different conversation that's wonderful yeah i'm the same way you know you read about the people with their morning routines and like wake up and take a one hour walk with just a little journal and a pen and this and i'm like that's so great for you i (laughs) i'm sure it's like a blissful existence and and truly like like good good on you and i hope it bears fruit and it better society and yourself and you die happy and i'm just like listen guys this is the raisin brand we have i'm sorry it's not the one you wanted but that's what we fucking got. So eat up, eat up. That's my blissful walk. Hey, so speaking of young people, I guess slightly more advanced young people, as I've been thinking about this conversation, again, reading your amazing book, I I try to get, as I always kind of say to folks, sort of a 201 or a 301 and whatever our conversation's about before we do it. So it can be more of a conversation than just, just an interview. And I'm lucky to have a family just chock full of professional mental health folks in a variety of capacities, always on the mind and and being challenged on these things. But I was in an Uber the other day, and there's a driver. He was a young to early middle-aged black man, probably around my age, thoughtful, concerned human. About 40 minutes, we had time to get into things. And one of the things we're talking about, I'm in Virginia, and we're sort of back and forth in the process of legalizing marijuana. So it started with decriminalization, and now it's legalization, and they're working towards 
retail. And one of these ideas he brought up was he was really concerned about young people and how it might be abused. And we tried to, together, contextualize it around the limited research we have, right, around side effects and health outcomes, but also in a broader sense around alcohol and obviously what opioids have done to so many folks if they's, as they have sought to cope with everything or pain, uh, physical or mm-hmm. mental. And we got into the mental health side, and he brought it back to the youth. And and again, I don't think he was much older than I was, or at least he looked a lot better than I do. But one of his points was he really didn't understand, not in a way where he was criticizing, but how are the young people so anxious and so stressed and why? And again, he, he, he clearly wasn't seeking to diminish us. He really seemed like he wanted to understand it. So again, we contextualized and we talked about all the trauma and the plight of what previous generations have gone through in yeah. the early 60s with, with Cuba or 9-11 or, or the financial issues. And, you know, you said in the book, the world's been ending for a long time, right, in a mm-hmm. lot of different ways for a lot of different folks, mm-hmm. often, if not mostly disproportionately, more so by the less wealthy. But we've also survived. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Considering, again, that this is your field of focus and, and young people, I wonder how often you run into folks older than we are who truly don't understand. Maybe they've been through other things themselves or they, maybe they don't grasp truly the, the ramifications of, of what's happening and what's going to happen. But who do want to understand this, again, overwhelming anxiety that we're seeing in so many young people? Like, is this something that's prevalent or no? And thank you for listening to my my tale. Thank you for the setup. It's sure. something that I've encountered a lot. I was on a call with some mental health professionals last week, and one asked, okay, what's going on? You know, we've had the Holocaust. We've had nuclear crises. We've had genocides all over in all shapes and sizes. What's up with this generation? Are they coddled? Mm -hmm. Are they soft? Right? I mean, why do we need to introduce trauma-informed ways of doing climate education in the classroom? Mm -hmm. I don't get it. (laughs) And it's a sentiment that I've heard from many people who are of older generations. And I think there's a few things that we need to to break down. Firstly, stepping aside from the climate crisis. So the statistics on youth mental health have been going off the charts in a bad way for the better part of the last decade in terms of anxiety, depression, suicidality. And a lot of that research has hooked in with ideas around the I generation, right? Technology, social media, these kinds of propensities that capitalism has spread throughout our culture in such a way that these devices and the tech on them crawl down our brain, hijack the brainstem, become addictive, Mm -hmm. and really are deleterious to young people's mental health as it relates to them feeling lonely and isolated and not good enough and constantly comparing to others and in this endless hall of mirrors, this simulacrum in the digital space of uh, socializing rather, and they're not getting together in real life as much. Kids aren't having as much sex. They aren't partying as much. You know, they're on their phones, etc. All these think pieces that we've seen about it. In the United States, there's a huge mental health crisis where a lot of parents of teenagers who are having mental health crises can't get beds for their kids when they're in a moment of high danger. And 
it's saturated. The system is saturated. There's not enough mental health care professionals to be able to treat these kids and their desperate parents saying, what can we do? It's of course been in a pandemic, which has been its own mental health pandemic for young people who've borne the brunt of a lot of those negative impacts. And, you know, I was brought in for a conference on parenting teens at the last minute because it was trying to address this, that, you know, we have young people in Gen Z not doing well and we don't know how to help them. So we're going to get all these great interdisciplinary voices together about healing and trauma and resilience and mental health supports for these young folks. And at the end of their program, they realized, oh, we haven't even incorporated anything about the climate crisis yet. This is an afterthought, right? meaning there's a lot going on already, right? Sure. Regardless of the climate, which is difficult for younger people today to navigate as well as for their families to figure out the best ways to support them. But then you add in the climate crisis, which to many young people does not feel like it's some kind of potential apocalypse mm -hmm. in the future. It's something already here unfolding. The science, the best science in the world is telling us, as Antonio Guterres, UN Secretary General, paraphrased and summarized it as a code red for humanity, mm -hmm. right? And with all of that knowledge, the best measurements and models for decades in terms of the delay we've had on this with respect to action and leadership, they are still seeing the people who are put in positions of power to protect them fail to take up their responsibility to do so on a daily basis, right? They read the dire reports and news, and then they read an article that Biden is going to ship a bunch of natural gas to Europe and so on and so forth, or how many new drilling permissions were given under his presidency, given that it's so-called climate presidency. I mean, right. what's going on? You know, those kinds of feelings tip into a space of moral injury, feeling institutionally betrayed. So mm -hmm. it's much worse. It's not just that young people are feeling bad because the environment isn't doing well and they can see the effects of that, whether it's rolling in as a wildfire, flood, hurricane, drought, sea level rise, sea ice loss in their communities or heat waves, and of course, importantly, the way that this is intimately tied up with systemic racism mm -hmm. and those who are dealing with the most air pollution from burning of fossil fuels in their neighborhoods um, and dealing with being in the least resilient neighborhoods for being able to repair after some of these impacts. Often poor communities of color, by no accident, it's by design, of course, because of history of racist policies that have sure. redlined certain communities into certain places. But furthermore, it's so much worse because it feels like the adults have left the building. It feels like those people who have the power in society to act on this are not taking the opportunities to do so and failing them further. It's this cannibalism of the future feeling that they're living wow. with. That's good. <laughs> That's a heck of a lot to bear as a young person who's got sure. their eyes open to the climate crisis and just... Furthermore, living in a society where people are happy to hop in their big trucks and go to Costco and buy all the shit wrapped in plastic and bring it home and never pay any mind about where this is going because it's an invisibility aspect of the throwaway culture, right? Someone else will deal with it. And yet sure. they can feel that it's piling up. So all those are the kinds of sentiments Great. that young people tell me when I talk to them about it. It's a lot on top of other issues that are already, of course, causing them stress. Right. You got to love when you see the Twitter poll. And it's like, first of all, any sentence that starts with that should just be shot down immediately. But 
people are like, why are young people mad that they can't buy a house? And you're like, you know, that's like, yes, but also it's like number 47 on the fucking list of, of like issues, yeah. you know? Yeah. And and it's it's so many things. And I was really struck and, again, identified as someone with young, very privileged white kids, but also try to mentor where I can. And but also someone, again, with kids. And I'm sure as you're discovering more and more with with your partner and your child, so much of successful of trust and succeeding and flourishing through anything comes down to both communication, but also Mm -hmm. expectations. Right. And shit happens, of course. But it seems like as humans, so much of our dread comes down to often uncertainty, even even the smallest thing, right? And that can affect, that sort of anxiety can affect different people in so many different ways. That's why clear expectations are so helpful, right? Whether you've got a six months old or, or you've got a huge job, you're running thousands of people or you're a policymaker, but mm-hmm. ruined expectations. No one has more expectations than, than people in the West, right? Because we have so far to fall in the sense that we are wealthier than anyone has has ever been. So so folks in the West, especially white people, just have this, like you said, this lifestyle where we go and buy all this stuff and we power these things with these fossil fuels. And we've never truly like even calculated the true cost of these things. Mm. It's interesting, but also not surprising that so many of the folks in, in who are able to go to therapy are people who can afford to be there because therapy is expensive. Yeah. So many folks in the U.S. don't have healthcare, uh, much less one that covers it because they're hourly workers. And again, those are the people who, who who were sold sort of this bill of goods or participated in this bill of goods. And so their expectations have the farthest to fall. But you use this word betrayed, and, and that is the, the other extension of it is it goes from being misled by a climate administration, right, to being mm-hmm. betrayed. And this idea, like you said, that the world is more fragile than we thought, but that there are also you would think upon discovering that, that we would do something about it. And that's where they feel like they've been betrayed the most is you said you recognize the problem and you said you were going to do something about it and you're doing the opposite. And so I wonder mm-hmm. how much you really encounter like actual anger, like how much of this grief comes from people who feel angry and betrayed at where we are. Cause we're past like, is it real? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Way past it. And the anger is a predominant emotion out there with lots of generations, not just young people. And it's rooted in a healthy sense of injustice. It means that one's conscience is intact, right? And that they Mm -hmm. know what it feels like to be morally transgressed and their radar for being wronged is turned on. And so it's a healthy emotion to be acting from. It can be very motivating. There have been studies of eco-emotions and, you know, arguments from that data to show that It's a more productive emotion to be angry rather than depressed, for example, or anxious about the environmental crisis. But of course, it's not like we just have one emotion at a time. There's many in which we can find ourselves. But I think that that's a a perfectly fruitful and good place to be working from when you're pissed off about what's happening, not only because there's such, we're speaking in a highly American context through some of the examples we've given already, but of course, this is global with lots of various forms of bodies who are meant to act on this, not doing so. And that's why you've got young people rising up and suing their governments, right, under the framework that it violates their human rights because governments are not protecting the future habitability of the planet. I mean, it doesn't get more existential than that. It's very core what these arguments are. It's perfectly logical. At the same time, the anxiety from the uncertainty is very understandable, too. It's very taxing to have to try and sort through and coexist and just be calm while sitting with mass uncertainty about 
how much temperatures are going to rise, how governments are going to act, how humanity will band together and unite under the sense of shared humanity and partnership protection for each other or not and go the opposite and split and fragment and become more dominating in localized spaces as people clamor and clobber each other over dwindling resources, which obviously feels very likely as a direction. So all of that for various evolutionary reasons is really hard for our brains to deal with and we need to practice dealing with uncertainty and tolerating it for longer periods of time, which is not intuitive. And we need to come together with others in order to figure out how we can show ourselves up to do that kind of work as the world spins in this more chaotic way as we've been experiencing. So I'm not sure if that answered your question, but we started on anger. No, I think we did. And it made me think about, you wrote a little bit in the book, but you also, your newsletter is also fantastic. Thank you for that. Oh, thanks. So helpful personally, but also to the work I'm trying to do here. And you wrote uh, recently, and apologies, like time is a flat circle slash I'm a goldfish, whatever metaphor you need. I can't keep track of things at this point. But recently you wrote about this increasing uh, effort and need to develop a real taxonomy around the feelings we're feeling and 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 what's being done and, and happening to us. And, and you just mentioned, you know, we started with anger, but you said, obviously, we are able and it's important to recognize that we can feel many different things at once. How important is this effort to develop a real taxonomy so that we can hopefully help people more and help ourselves more. But I'm also curious, and this is a slight pivot, but again, I try to think about seeing as people that look like me have generally for a few thousand years been the been the people in charge and that hasn't worked out so great. Mm. Who gets to decide that taxonomy? Because, you know, when we talk to folks about AI ethics, there's this idea of the alignment problem, which is it's not the data and the algorithms, it's the people designing them, the people in the room, which tend to be the same people over and over. So I'm curious about how important is this taxonomy and, and who really gets to have input and, and decide on how we move these things forward. So that was actually a project organized by Panu Pikula, who's a Finnish eco-anxiety researcher. And what he did was conduct a systematic review of the published literature that's been put out there, academically speaking, to date on environmental emotions, eco-emotions, you know, the what are called psychoterratic emotions. So emotions relating to felt and perceived states of the earth that are just out there in the literature. And he said, we need some kind of organizing principle around what people are learning from doing studies with communities about how this is affecting them emotionally, the environmental crisis. And then he organized the findings into these categorized learnings, which I shared on my newsletter. Mm -hmm. So really, it's not a call to action to create a new taxonomy as much as it is showing what one researcher found when taking a non-biased approach Mm -hmm. to sorting through what scholars have figured out about how these emotions are showing up in people's lives and what impact they have. Mm -hmm. And then he put it into one article so at least we can get a lay of the land by reading through and seeing what people have found. So in that sense, of course, there will be biases about who's doing that research, right? Of course. And who has the environmental education to even care about this, to then go conduct a study, to, you know, be in that form of profession, working in some research institution and asking people about their anxiety, grief, or jealousy, or rage, or joy and connection, all these different emotions he found and was writing about. But 
that doesn't mean that the taxonomy is closed. And of course, there will be new ways of studying how these emotions are showing up in people's lives. It's helpful because it creates some awareness and space for reflection in many of our societies. We are not very emotionally intelligent, right? We prize rationality. We prize progress. We prize feeling great, happiness, getting out there and doing your thing in the world and go, go, go. And there's been a huge amount of toxic positivity that has trickled down into all of our lives because of that lack of of depth and curiosity for looking at the full spectrum of human emotions, which include the challenging ones, because Buddhists say joy and suffering are both equal, indivisible aspects of life, of being here. And we like to tamper down the suffering part as much as possible and just focus on the emotions we can not feel shame around, not judge ourselves for, and not feel judged by others for having. Um, But this leaves us really underserved, especially when it comes to increasingly challenging times, when these emotions are natural responses to caring about the world, feeling an attachment to things that really matter to us. And then our anxiety points out that something's in danger, for example, or, you know, the depression can set in about something and the grief about something that's being lost. All of this is totally normal and natural reaction to have, but we have very few tools and, and little socially supported equipment, meaning social norms for processing this together. So a taxonomy is helpful because it gives permission, it validates, it legitimizes, it gives examples of other people who are reckoning with these emotions and finding ways to not only feel them and sit in them, and that's important, even just that first step is really hard for people, that we can do a lot to suppress them. But also, importantly, learn how to reframe the emotions and and harness them for things that are meaningful, purposeful, or helpful, or good. I'm trying to not use terms like good and bad here because I want to get away from this positive-negative framing. But you can harness climate anxiety, for example, for motivating really fantastic climate justice-oriented work. Sure. I loved that that part of the book uh, where you you got into the you know, and again, it could be different for different people on, on any given minute, hour, day. And, and again, I'm incredibly privileged, but it felt that way. There's days where I'm just like, my wife has literally at times found me hiding under a blanket at home. And she's like, oh, that's not great. Oh. You know, and I'm as privileged as it could possibly get. This hasn't affected me in any way, health or family or financial wise in any capacity. And, and yet mm-hmm. we feel these things. But then there are times where you just, you use this grief or this anger or whatever the description might be that falls within this, within this taxonomy, it seems like it makes so much sense, right? Because, again, we can ask all these questions and we can interrogate who gets to do what, but it seems like, like you said, at least intentionally non-biased uh, or less biased attempt at establishing a baseline shared as much as it can be shared language and almost walking away at that point, you know, to then find out how much universality there is within this by region, by people, by experience, whatever it is, pick Mm. your climate threat. That seems helpful. It seems like it's something at the very least we can can build on because without that, it's hard. And again, like you said, it comes down to expectations. You know, I I thought about that. There's a moment in the book, you shared the quote from the, the young person who, it was the section on, having kids, which you were 
so thoughtful and, and brave to share your experience and, and your process in that. And I know so many folks go through that and young people. But there's a quote from the young person who basically was just like, look, I don't regret being born. Like, but did my parents like fucking think about it twice? Like th- mm-hmm. that this is what they're bringing me into. And mm-hmm. and that is just profound because it there's is. this there's this metaphor that's often thrown around of I'm not sure if you follow baseball or sports at all and it can, they can be overused and oversimplify things but this idea of coming up to bat with two strikes on you right right there's one thing about your expectations about being misled or or having those ruined it's another thing to come out and be like oh we're just fucked that's the thing like that's what I've got to work with you know mm-hmm. that 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 is what that must do has got to just be incredibly traumatic and, and hopefully at times empowering, but I, I don't think we can assume that that it, it acts that way for everyone. No, exactly. Yeah, it was a powerful quote. I think she said verbatim, it's not that I wish that I were dead. It's that, did they have any fucking clue about what was going on when they decided to have me because I'm so stressed out about my future, I can hardly take it, is the general idea there. And it's a common sentiment. And this idea of having two strikes against you is profound about being born at this moment in time, because we are going through this phase shift in generations, right? Where there had been generations improving upon what their parents had given them time and time again. And the sense of an expansive future and more more productivity and more wealth and more health and longer lifetimes and you know, all the stuff that Steven Pinker likes to talk about in terms of less war and more prosperity. And rather quickly, we have a complete breakdown in those trends. And it's not like the kids who are now reckoning with that are being raised in social norms that are focused on supportively processing that twist Mm -hmm. and ushering through a new way of looking at the world and identifying questions of like, what is enough? Mm-hmm. And what am I here for? What What's my purpose? Um, how am I going to show up at this moment in time? People are generally not reflecting on those questions, but moving through with the former presumptions about all these things we're supposed to expect, and it's not happening. And, mm-hmm. you know, no one in my generation can get a pension or afford to buy a home and, you know, so on and so forth, let alone these other bigger issues. In that sense, it leaves young people feeling awash mm-hmm. without anyone kind of legitimizing these fears and stresses on them, except for their own peers, which is not helpful. And it leaves even more of a burden on them to figure this out when they've already inherited the climate crisis and the duty to clean it up. And they're often made aware of this before they have an opportunity to figure out important aspects of their identity, grow up and have fun and experiment and find their unique path in the world. It's landing on their shoulders at really young ages now. And those who are still alive and the ones in power and holding office have been able to enjoy these expansive prosperous ways of of going about their own generational existence. And so there's just a disconnect there and it's it's rather quick and it's jarring, but it does leave also especially those with privilege and protection who have been raised by those kinds of families saying, that's not what we were promised. We were told that this is supposed to be, I mean, especially millennials with our whole me generation, you know, you can be anything you want to be kind of Uh parenting format. It's a huge disconnect when then this sense of 
whether it's a foreboding feeling about societal collapse due to climate catastrophe or other issues sets in, breaks through defenses. It's no longer just an intellectual problem of, oh, yeah, this environmental crisis, we really ought to throw all of our muscle at it and get technologically innovative here and rework our policies. It's then an overwhelming stress that means that those psychological defenses are no longer helpful to you and you experience what the sociologist Anthony Giddens calls ontological insecurity when you no longer feel safe in the world or secure. And that creates all kinds of huge behavioral responses, a real fragmentation. It can feel like an internal shattering. It can be so intense that people really cannot bear it. And I'm not saying this is all young people. I'm, I'm saying that some young people who are dealing with the ego distress experience it in this way. And it tends to be harder for those who have privilege and protection because this is what teaches them that the world is far more fragile than they thought it was. Sure. And dangerous than they thought it was. So that's an interesting thing that people are processing, but often on their own and feeling really alienated and isolated in that. And they need support. They need to find others and talk it through and not feel so abject in their loneliness about that. And then, of course, we talk about communities who are not so privileged and protected and who have long known that the world is a dangerous place. Um, right. they promised then the, not much. Yeah. And the two strikes against them feeling has been there a long time, and now there's mm-hmm. this foreboding climate crisis awareness on top of it. Talk about injustices upon injustices upon injustices and a real need to develop an ethics of care that is pointed at supporting those communities. That's why also this kind of eco-distress can be such a transformative bridge as a powerful form of solidarity creation because those with more privilege and protection who are waking up feeling like the world is ending, so to speak, quote unquote. I don't actually mean that. We can talk about what we mean by saying the world has ended many times before can do that kind of inner reflection and think, oh man, if I'm feeling this shaken by the lack of action towards this problem and the increasing obviousness of its detrimental effects in communities all around me, how are these other people feeling, right? Sure, sure. Which can help people gain some perspective and not just be so navel-gazy about it. And that does seem to be part of folks like myself have to endeavor to do, which is deal with my own shit, not to not to undervalue it, uh, hiding mm-hmm. under a blanket, but at the same time, really work to listen, to understand and and empathize, and then as much as possible, be an ally to, again, peoples and groups who, like you said, it's been two strikes forever. And often Mm -hmm. it's because of systems designed that way. Mm -hmm. And we keep doing that. You mentioned this sort of almost innate default action of finding folks to relate with and, and yeah. talk with and how that, that can be hard. And I think about, I, I've been very lucky over the past few years getting into all of this to have found a group of folks who, frankly, have been doing it much, much longer than I have and, and gone through the ups and downs who who I can call, frankly, or text and say, Jesus, this is dark. You know, they already know that. <laughs> They're probably yeah. thinking that too. They've got someone they can call and text about it. Usually it uh, doesn't necessarily mean they're okay, however we right. want to phrase that. But I I have realized that I have to be very careful and strategic about who I really talk to about the true, the what could happen things, the what's Mm -hmm. already baked in what could happen things, like the the Mm -hmm. mathematical real world stuff, but also how I'm feeling about it. Because you can really ruin someone's day who isn't aware or isn't prepared 
oh, yeah. or isn't down with this, you have to be careful with your relationships. I mean, you shared that story yeah. of someone saying, hey, listen, your shit's gotten really dark. Yeah. You need to be aware of that. And and I've yeah. gotten that talk 100%. It's made me go like, should I be doing this? Because I'm not sure if, if I'm capable of handling it in a way that yeah. I can balance my life and end the work. But at the same time, you know, it seems like I had this wonderful call with the folks at Sesame Street. Cool. I mean, literally, I was like, I'll drop everything. I don't fucking care. Like, I'll, I'll literally, I was like, I owe you guys everything. But it was this question of sort of like, how do we, because they shifted their formatting. I don't remember how long ago from, I think it was like four to five-year-olds to three to four-year-olds. And that's a big change for the intended audience. And it's like, how do you talk about three to four-year-olds about climate change? It's like, fucking, it's really hard. But yeah. one of the things I, I've thought about a lot, and again, how I talk to my kids, very privileged and can handle this and have access to the outside and water and air they can breathe. But it's about relationships, really. You know, yes. it's about our relationships with nature of which we are inextricably part of, relationships with each other, relationships. So I have worked hard to make the show. My guests are 60% identify as women and almost 50% are people of color because the least I can do is at least listen to them and then try to be allies and mm -hmm. build relationships. But at the same time, we have to be so careful that, again, the people we talk to, we're not putting a burden on them or even worse, that we're being extractive. And I wonder if you've gained yeah. any insight into a way to be methodical and, and empathetic and thoughtful about doing that as I think there's probably a lot of folks out there, again, who are listening to this, who are working hard either on climate or something else or COVID or public health, who are like, yeah, I still don't have those people that I can talk to and I want to make sure I'm not making it worse. Yes. Yeah. These are all really key questions. Oh, yeah. I've, I've been in many uncomfortable situations where I'm being too frank and honest about my own fears and the rattling number of scientific papers in my brain whose findings are terrifying that I need to talk about. <laughs> and it's not the right audience. And it's typically because they haven't had their awakening and they're, let's be honest, keeping their head in the sand to protect their own psychic comfort, which is very understandable and very normal and lots of people do it. And I do it consciously from time to time to give myself a break, of course. However, there is a whole world out there of people who are gathering specifically to provide a container, a safe space for people to come together and talk about these issues and how they're affecting them so that they can get that relief and support and new energizing ideas for how to respond to it emotionally and rationally. And some groups that I can mention, for example, are Please. Climate Awakening. Climate Awakening is led by Margaret Klein-Solomon, who's a psychologist and activist, and she has these virtual drop-in sessions where you can show up and talk about anything under the sun as it relates to the fact that, that sun is making you feel warmer. <laughs> but really, it's a place for direct conversation with just a, a one-off kind of session. And there's also climate cafes, mm -hmm. which are decentralized gatherings run all over the world. You can Google climate cafe in your area and see if one's happening. But the Climate Psychology Alliances of the UK and North America are hosting a bunch of them. And those can be a productive space for knowing, okay, here, it's okay to share whatever is on your mind. There's nothing that you're going to be judged for. Everything's going to be validated and mirrored. And people, other people are going to share their feelings too. And that's going to be strengthening. But then what I think is even more powerful than a single drop-in session, depending on where you're at, 
are these programs that Mm -hmm. actually move you through weeks and weeks of meeting together. So something like the Good Grief Network, it's modeled actually on Alcoholics Anonymous. They turned it into a 10-step program, and it's for exploring all of these intense, challenging emotions that come with the uncertainty that the climate and eco-crisis brings into our lives. And by the end of the program, you know, each week there's a step, and they really go there, you know, talking about mortality Mm -hmm. and all sorts of things. And at the end, you are led through a process of reinvesting the emotional energy that you've lost from being freaked out or angry or, you know, depressed, whatever it might be about the crisis, into actions that are meaningful for you in authentic ways. No prescription Mm -hmm. about how to take action, but, Mm -hmm. you know... who are you and what are you good at and what brings you joy and what feels like it needs doing and how do you tap in that kind of a thing, which is really regenerating. There's also the work that reconnects, which is a really powerful program that people can find again in their different locales by looking to see if they are run or you, there's just virtual formats of the work that reconnects facilitators. It's all about going through grief about injustices in the world as it relates to the eco-crisis and then coming out the other side, seeing the world with new eyes. There's All We Can Save circles off that best-selling feminist anthology, All We Can mm-hmm. Save, and those are, you know, propping up all over. So there is basically a cottage industry of support groups for talking about this stuff because the yeah. need is very great and people are saying, I need someone to talk to. And then there's sure. also climate-aware therapy, but that gets mm-hmm. us into one-on-one meetings and, you know, not everyone has the means to be able to pay for a therapist, but... If you do, they're an incredibly powerful support to, again, dwell in the emotions with someone who gets it and who can help you cope. So there's a climate-aware therapy directory that people can look up through the Climate Psychology Alliance and Climate Psychiatry Alliance. And by the way, just listen to those words. Those are real professional alliances now. Climate psychology, climate psychiatry, where mental health professionals are reorganizing their memberships to focusing on the trauma that comes from the climate crisis as the number one mm-hmm. threat. Mm-hmm. So it's a ripe time for finding support, but really all you need are the right friends who get it and who aren't going to say, don't be so dire, you're frying, or look outside, the sky isn't falling, or you're just being dramatic. You need to have someone who truly will allow you to dwell in that space and will stand in the fire with you. Sure. And it's amazing how relieving that is just to find the right audience. So you need to be aware about who you're talking to and how you might be existentially stressing them in ways that they're not ready for. I appreciate that a lot. And again, everyone is very different and all of that is justified and you can change. But, you know, I know it also, again, helped me to have someone, my wife, say, Hmm. if you're going to do this, you got to find a way to not like we're not talking shove things down, but like you got to be able to come home to three young kids and like handle your shit. Right. And around me, too, because a relationship would be nice. Don't diminish it, but there's got to be things. And it's mm. it's it's wonderful and hard to hear that we've come so far that we like we've got this cottage industry. Uh, I wish right. it didn't have to exist. <laughs> exactly. But Quinn, in your life, as that shows up, is it related to climate distress specifically that you're talking about when your wife says you got to handle your shit before you come home to our three kids? Or is it because your work is looking at so many intersecting and synchronous crises. It's not just climate, right? Yeah, I don't recommend it. That's a challenge, of course, to be thinking about this stuff eight hours a day. At the beginning of this, and often with new folks in our community, they go, oh, do you have a scientific background or or engineering this? I'm like, no, no, like liberal arts major. That's what I got. So, you know, I can take a step back and ask annoying questions and, and, and hopefully try to 
pull the dots together. I, like I said to you, you know, this is, we've had 136 conversations that are published. There's probably 10 times more offline. I, I really try to level up. And so bringing those pieces together has been helpful, whether it's just journals or it's conversations or whatever it might be. One thing I've found for myself, and again, this is kind of how we've built this thing, and I'm very aware of the criticisms of this on the whole, and if it's not executed well, and certainly we don't do it perfectly, which is this sense of we're going to talk about climate or COVID or kids' cancer. Yeah. But I want to provide you with a really specific way you can do something about it at the end of it because it can often be helpful. It is not a right. solve for everyone or often anyone, mm -hmm. but for a lot of folks, it's something. And, and we try to frame it as this might just help you feel better today or this, this will probably measurably drive some sort of systemic change, whether it's some voting or legislation or policy or whatever it might be, right? I find it helps folks who just come to us and say, what can I do? Yeah. So that has been helpful for me. Uh, it certainly doesn't solve everything. I think taking on all of these things is a lot. But again, if I had this conversation with a friend who's a, a journalist at Bloomberg Green, Akshat Rathi, who's great. He's been on the show a couple of times. He he's chases in particular down things like the, the house of cards that is like carbon offsets, right? And, mm. you know, we had this brief chat about looking at how old we both were and, and all these net zero plans and the ticking clock and when we need to decarbonize. And you look at it and go like, oh, this is... That's literally our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And it, you have to ask this question. I try to be, with three kids, manageable at how I use my time. And, you know, yeah. it's that idea of how we measure our time is how we spend our days, right? And right. if that's my lifetime and I want to back up and go, how do I want to spend my days? I want to be a dad who's home for dinner every night and put my kids to bed. Mm -hmm. I feel very lucky to be able to do that. But what am I doing in between? Because at some point they're going to be like, hey, dad things have gone south. Like, what did you do? And I'll say, I had a podcast. But more so, it's a question of, you know, what are you, what are you for? And, and yeah. what can you do? And what can you provide value, if any? And that's how my, I spend my time is talking about and trying to investigate and help people rethink and take some action on if they want to, these big issues that can make a cleaner, more equitable world for more folks, then that's great. It's just that sometimes... I'm going to have a hard time with it, but yeah. finding people I can talk to, having a million therapists, a variety, a potpourri of them yeah. in my in my family, having having friends, uh, professional networks, being able to take time off, be, knowing that I have air to breathe and things like that is helpful. Mm -hmm. But I want to get into the the reverse real quick. You're saying there's all these you know these amazing cottage industries of folks who are trained and up to date on what's happening so that they can be supportive, um, especially psychologists, psychiatrists, and, and, and social workers. Mm -hmm. I want to get into how they can actually get into those type of networks, those those folks, and how they can improve yeah. themselves. But first, just a quick more philosophical thing, because I loved this idea you had in the book, uh, and it rings into one of my favorite guests, Bina Venkatarman, who is a, uh, she's an author of a book called The Optimist Telescope. Oh, I know her stuff. Yeah, she's, she's great. fucking great. She was the editor for the Boston Globe opinion section until recently. She has this quote in her book that just totally reframed so much of my work and how I spend my time, which is this idea of how can I be a better ancestor? Right. Yes, yes. And you have this idea in the book of essentially like, yes, you should help yourself and take care of yourself and those around you. And we can deal with these problems. But also, how do we see ourselves as links in this chain? Right. From, mm -hmm. from the beginning uh, to the end, not to minimize ourselves, but as stewards of the timeline and time and, and this planet. And we can't yes. give up. We have to have resilience. And 
I love both of those because I think all the time, like, again, how can we be better ancestors? And I'm wondering, again, sort of pragmatically, constructively, like, what have you come upon that helps people see themselves in that way a little more as opposed to, like, everything is fucked right now. Right. One thing that I think is just so core to why indigenous worldviews are typically very healthy <laughs> Mm-hmm. is that many indigenous communities think in terms of seven generations out, right? So acting with the knowledge that you are one aspect of a vessel that extends through seven generations of human beings who are in kinship with the rivers and lakes and birds and ants and mm-hmm. everything, right? Mm-hmm. It is an interconnectedness that um, is never outside of one's consciousness. And of course, that is not the way in which many non-Indigenous folks have been raised to think about themselves. But it's possible to practice modes of becoming aware of that truth, right? Mm -hmm. That there are so many generations beyond you and that there was a moment at which this culture took form that required a severance from acting with that connection in mind. It wasn't that we were always this way. And I try to trace this a little bit in the book too, through thinkers who have tried to address how Western culture became so disenchanted. Mm -hmm. And of course, this links in with industrialization and, and domination and extraction. And But when you no longer see yourself as connected to the natural world, you are living a profoundly unenchanted life, as the mythologist and psychologist Sharon Blackie talks about. When you are no longer able to marvel at the beautiful biodesign of a squirrel, you know, <laughs> then you are no longer able to live your full human potential as an enchanted person here. And those kinds of thought patterns, I think, are really key for not taking for granted this moment as the way it had to be, but it, it's really the product of specific histories, specific people at certain times making certain decisions because it benefited them mm-hmm. while stomping on other aspects of existence that maybe we want to go back and think carefully about. And again, this is in the book. I'm not doing a good job now of tracing this for you, but how can we think about what we might like to restore from the past, um, things that have been lost and things that used to be ours. Mm-hmm. And similarly, when we're looking in the past, we can also think about the future and understand that one of the main traumas, this social contract that's breaking down between adults and young people right now, is an act of failed ancestorship. When sure. young people are feeling like the moral injury is on high because people put in power to protect them are not doing so by not acting in responsible ways towards the climate crisis. This is a glimpse into, of course, an extension of that trend line that we can think about into future generations that Mm -hmm. would be horrible to uphold. And so it takes conscious awareness. It takes thinking about the ways in which we are showing up or abandoning the moment But in terms of really key practices for being an ancestor, I think it's driven by moral clarity. I think it's driven by one's internal ethical compass. If you're awake to the moment and feeling distressed, you understand that this isn't just about right now. This is about what it's turning into. Mm -hmm. So strengthening yourself in ways internally and externally to focus on that and not turn away when it's so much easier to look away is a really key aspect of being a good ancestor right now. 
But that means, and I think this is in line with what you're trying to do with your podcast, by pushing people towards action, which is so important, we need to be externally strengthened and able to throw all of our talents and schedules at these different intersecting crises to improve the outcome for for our descendants, whether they're biologically ours or not. But also we need to understand that activism isn't just external. Activism is also internal, as the fabulous climate aware therapist Caroline Hickman talks about. And we haven't really regarded internal our internal worlds as a place for activism. But it's a whole space in which we must draw our attention to find ways of being not only able to soothe ourselves and and work with our nervous systems through various forms of mindfulness, meditation, self-care, whatever it might be, ways of living within our window of tolerance for uncertainty and regulating our nervous systems. But being able to do that, as you said, in relationship with others, co-regulating our nervous systems with our kids Mm. when things are getting tougher. That's a difficult task and it's a lifelong project and we need to do that so that we're not just reacting and lashing out by external circumstances that are challenging to us and then affecting the nervous systems of our kids and not leaving them in a good resilient place, for example. All of that is key, but then there's just the emotional quotient of being able to accept and allow your feelings to be there so that they move through you and you aren't exerting all this unconscious energy and suppressing them. And then able to connect that internal world of activism with your external world and use your emotions as navigational tools to guide you towards where you can be most effective in the external action and and really honing in on things that are most important to you that you're worried about is a powerful way to cope at this time. And, you know, I think we weren't recording yet, but you said that, you know, there's lots of people who are feeling like, oh, geez, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, but I've been spending the last 10, 15 years helping social media companies make better ads or whatever, and they're feeling like it's not making them feel alive at this time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And paying attention to those emotions is key, right? Yeah. Being able to get in touch with them and allow them to steer you to things that, as Sarah Wilson, the writer and podcaster, says, you're one wild and precious life, right? To really burst through these norms that have put you in a lane that you're dissatisfied with and find the new path forward that is going to make you feel most vital, alive, awake, connected, able to practice love, loving kindness in the way that you move through your workday and your relationships. Like all of that is connected to your internal activism. Mm-hmm. So I think that those kinds of developments as we move into more challenging times, are, people are realizing that stuff's not working and it's, it's guiding them towards these these kinds of, of internal reckonings, which is fantastic. I think it's very hopeful. <laughs> um, there's an amazing paper in The Lancet by some eco-anxiety researchers who say that although uncomfortable, the rise in eco-anxiety and eco-grief may ultimately be a hopeful thing because it's the crucible through which humanity must pass to harness the energy for the life-saving actions that are now required. It's the ultimate sieve or sieve I never know how to pronounce that word who can know through which we move so that the bullshit gets brushed aside you know there's no room for it it doesn't fit through the holes (laughs) and then you come out the other side in this more distilled form with clarity about what you're going to do and that's all emotionally driven well thank you for sharing all that um that's extremely powerful and 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 it does matter I mean no one's saying like 
go and download Headspace and do it for 10 days and you'll be fine. It's like, that's a tool. And it's not for everyone, but it's out there. And then these yeah. climate networks and variety of ways of pulling people together and helping you explore your interactivism, as you so eloquently put it, are out there. And they're, again, for better or worse, more available and, and more probably more grounded in where we are and, and how we can help each other and help ourselves than ever before. But the pausing to have a moment of, which is so hard these days when, when our phones are programmed to take us away, when we're, we're, we're intentionally not supposed to have a moment alone with our thoughts uh, for a thousand different reasons, that, that pausing to have any sort of self-awareness of, of where you are and what you might be feeling and why just makes, it can often be, you know, such a powerful, if terrifying at times, heartbreaking first step, but it can really take you so far. And and again, we're only going to get there if more and more people are able to do this. It's, you know, the more people that can that can have that moment, let themselves have that moment, and then start to work on themselves and then start to work externally, the further we're going to get to to making this, like you said, something that is livable, if not flourishing, if not better for folks seven generations later. And this is, again, where we think about injustice and responsibility and who we are in this ongoing cataclysm and what duties are ours compared to others, because there's also a lot of people out there who can't afford to reflect and take the time yeah. and don't have the mobility socially to be able to then rearrange everything and, and go work on this crisis, for example, if they're just of course. trying to get through three part-time jobs and feed their kids and whatever it might be. Those with the most power and privilege also track with the most emissions, you know, yeah, the most of using of the resources of and have the most yeah. flexibility to reorient and reattach to, as the psychoanalyst Sally Weintraub says, the parts of themselves that care to like burst sure. this bubble of the culture of uncare that we've been mired in for so long and take responsibility in life. Those with the ability to do so ought to do so, and it is our responsibility. You know, not to say it won't be difficult. Again, like the, the highest expectations have, have the farthest to fall, but at the same time, like you said, the greater responsibility, whether it's to the greater crowd that's alive now or seven generations in, in the past and future, um, you know, you asked, you know, <laughs> effectively, what is it like to sort of examine all of these make or break things all the time? And what it does is gives me the ability, which is not unique or profound in any way. Obviously, there's people who've been fighting and illuminating and, and fighting for these things for, for eons, um, mostly marginalized people. But to, to look at something like a, a coronavirus, which we have a lot of experience with, this one happened to be novel, and the N happened to be every person on planet Earth. But what makes actively this virus so dangerous and so deadly are the underlying societal things that we actively choose not to do every day to support those people who don't have time to switch their jobs because they think climate is cool now or to take time to reflect because yeah. we don't have paid sick leave, because we don't have paid time off, we don't have time to vote. Exactly. You don't have to do a lot of math to see what air pollution does on the whole, and especially in a couple of years where we have a, a cardiorespiratory virus or these pre-existing, you know, cardiopulmonary conditions that, that again, they're a choice that we have made the folks in power to, to continue doing. And it makes it so much harder on a day-to-day -day basis, kind of like the sunny day flooding they talk about in places like Miami, but also when mm. the storms come, when the viruses come, for those people who already have two strikes on them and can't do anything about it yes. that are going to suffer. And so, like you said, 
that is our responsibility to go, we have to fix these underlying things, as Ed Yong, the writer in The Atlantic, put it. Um, his, his version of the metaphor was, you know, this virus was a flood. It found every crack in the sidewalk that was ever there. Mm. Yeah. It's like a pop quiz. And it's like, hey, here's all the choices you've made. Let's see how it goes. And, it, you know, it's not great. Right. There are those of us who are much better positioned, even in our times of, of suffering or hardship, to actually do something about it once we're able to yeah. steal ourselves to do so. And, and again, I think that's part of the reason why I have tried to orient this towards not just context, but action, not just to help you feel like you're doing something, but so we can fucking do something. That's amazing. I love that. I love that. What are some more systemic things folks can do to improve support and access for for more people? Is it supporting those particular organizations you named before? Anything else you want to call out before we get you out of here? Yeah, those organizations are key for helping you on your own internal activism around the climate crisis. But as we're talking about external actions, it's really amazing how many ways people can attach, right? So, of Mm -hmm. course, there's the big, important, typical ones. You can vote for the climate. You can make that a key issue in which you choose your candidates and and vote. You can support any environmental justice group that is working in this space, of which there are tons and tons and tons. Choose your favorite, whether you're looking at youth-driven movements like Youth versus Apocalypse or Sunrise Movement or This is Zero Hour or, you know, Fridays for Future. Or you're looking at intergenerational groups, 350.orgs and others. Actually, Bill McKibben has a really interesting new The new project. one, Third Act. Yeah. Third Act, yeah, which I love about mobilizing people in the third act of their life to, to come alive around this topic. Yep. So that's so great. But anyway, Google's going to do a great job there for you finding the groups that you, yeah. you want rather than me listing them in my sleep-deprived brain right now. But <laughs> I don't want to ask you to name everyone. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think what's more compelling mm-hmm. than just talking about those ways in, which are really important, is doing this Venn diagram exercise that Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, who's a co-editor of All We Can Save, that feminist mm-hmm. climate anthology, has created where there's these three circles that come together in a Venn diagram. And one is basically, what am I good at? You're a good communicator and you're you're good, obviously, at project managing and media and these sorts of things and maybe writing and maybe research. And I'm guessing all these things probably resonate with you because well, you're, you're talking about doing me? this oh, podcast. Boy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that would be one way to fill out that circle. And then... Another would be what brings you joy. Maybe you're fascinated by the human condition and human psychology and talking to interesting characters and learning from people who know about niche things and so on and so forth. Whatever makes you get out of bed in the morning, or maybe it's your kids, or maybe it's music, or I don't know, gardening. And then the third circle is what is the work that needs doing? And here we can tap into the planetary health crisis, which is just teeming with work that needs doing, whether we're talking about, you know, the rates of infectious disease changing in in a warming world or water scarcity or soil desertification or the biodiversity crisis or environmental justice issues and air pollution in low-income communities and so on and so forth. There's just way more than that too, right? Go to the Planetary Health Alliance, by the way, that website, and you can learn all about different things to work on. And then the sweet spot is where those three circles overlap. And that creates a portal through which you can walk and find an authentic way of 
reorienting your efforts and time towards the thing that you're good at, that it brings in what you're good at and what you're joyful about and addresses the work that needs doing. And when you can figure out your own recipe like that for making change, then it's much more likely to stick. Like, I would imagine that you are interested in people, which is why you want to talk to them for a living, and that you know that the work that needs doing involves helping people find their ways to tap in at this time and being a bridge builder towards um, people's emerging concern and, you know, meaningful ways that they can make a difference. And so in that circle comes this idea of a podcast whereby you are probing very key issues to our moment and allowing for resource sharing and advocacy that can help people make these decisions and changes for their own existence, right? And now you have a podcast that is likely to stick because you're the author of it and it feels good. It's not someone telling you be a climate activist that looks like this and that and sure. has a sign at this and that protest that looks, you know, says X, Y, Z things. It's you figuring it out. And so me, I, I've done those kinds of diagrams without notice, knowing that I was doing it, which is what caused me to leave my former field of synthetic biology. And just as I was finishing my PhD in a totally different space and then reorient towards focusing on climate and mental health because of, you know, these key things that were making me get out of bed in the morning and felt like I could bring my skills to and knew that it was addressing a need that was out there and growing. So I really would encourage people to just look up Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson climate action diagram, look for those three intersecting circles, plug in your own variables and see if you can find a way of making some shifts that feel right for you. Uh, Cause there's endless places that need help right now. And therefore there's also endless approaches to which we can come at it from the climate and eco crisis touches everything. As you said, the pandemic <laughs> was the pop quiz. All the issues that came up on that test also connect with the planetary health crisis writ large of which the mm -hmm. pandemic is one subset. So, you know, we've got a lot of opportunity. Yeah. That's what I, I feel like usually how my Uber rides or sitting next to somebody on a plane or whatever it is when, you know, when they say, what can I do? And I say, what can you do? And it's, what do you love and what can you do? And, and often I will then tell them, listen, I can't tell you literally what you can do, but if you can answer those two questions, I can tell you 4,000 things we <laughs> like that check those boxes because yeah. we need kitchen sink. You know, we need yeah. the whole shebang. So so it's it's wonderful whatever brings you joy and that you're able to offer, whether that's volunteering or part-time or donating or, or full-time or whatever exactly. it might be. I can't believe you also fully know synthetic biology. It's just, uh, you know, I barely get through my day. Science communication focus on synthetic biology. I was not doing the lab work. You just, <laughs> easy. You just gave me like a full free therapy session. We don't need to take yourself down a notch here. It's, uh, <laughs> it's impressive. It's impressive. This has all been so tremendous and and wonderful and empathetic and, and I hope helpful to a lot of folks. And I can't wait uh, for people to, to get their hands on your book. Truly, truly, truly. I have Thank three you. little questions I ask everyone. Then we're getting you out of here because TikTok, we got a lot to do. First one, Britt, who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? Oh, there's so many. Jeez. Okay. You got to pick one. I'm going to pick Caroline Hickman. Okay. Not only is she the climate aware therapist who I talked about earlier as being fantastic, and therefore every time I meet with her, she has endless nuggets of wisdom that she speaks, but she was the lead author on a study that I co-published with her and a bunch of our other colleagues looking at 
climate anxiety in 10,000 children and young people's lives around the world, 10 countries spanning low, middle, and high-income nations. And our findings were, even for those of us who are mired in this stuff day in, day out, alarming to us as to how severe the disruption of functioning in young people's lives their climate anxiety is, which has become this really useful paper. I think it was There were more than a thousand media articles written about it, went around the world. The UN Secretary General brought it into the General Assembly and uh, Stephen Colbert did a bit on his show about it and basically just like upped the ante of the conversation of how how real this is. (laughs) And therefore, I think she's been an incredible boon for the field and therefore, you know, for my work too and uh, helping to address the importance of young people's well-being given their climate distress. Awesome. I love that because... It is really hard to deal with all this sometimes, and internal activism often includes self-care. What is your version of turning it all off and uh, taking care of yourself? Ooh, I've got a few. Certainly conscious short-term suppression, meaning not thinking and working on the crisis all hours of the day, every day, Mm. you know, bringing it home with me every night, thinking about it all weekend, because I've been there too, and I've been doing that. And it's it's just a recipe for burnout and misery. And so instead, I now know how to shift gears and allow myself go into play mode and, you know, hang out and be with my best friends and have fun and be goof and all that Mm -hmm. stuff and be able to park it rather than being that anxious kind of activist always talking about it and not seeing my needs met by other people who just didn't want to go there. (laughs) So that's been kind of important. And then meditation yoga Mm -hmm. before I had a baby when I used to have time for such things. I need to get it back in my life. Running Mm -hmm. and cooking as a relaxation. Reading novels, reading fiction, and interestingly, listening to podcasts or like audiobooks about astrophysics and things that really explore the cosmos and therefore point out how infinitesimally small this moment is in the history of yeah, creation, live. existence, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. That's very calming, strangely. <laughs> I like it. Awesome. I love those. I think people just love to hear about those because, frankly, you know, we all can do a better job. And so I think people are always like, oh, that works for her. I'll do walk- right. taking a walk in the forest or yeah. biking or whatever it is. Right. Last one, you mentioned reading. What is a book that you have read this year that either opened your mind to something you hadn't considered before, could be astrophysics, or has actually changed your thinking in some way. We've got a bookshop list of all this stuff, and obviously your book is going to go on that list as well. That's so sweet of you. Thank you for sharing the book. Oh my God, of course. I'm loving reading the Greek myths right now. I'm reading an anthology of the Greek myths, and this is not something I've visited since I was a child, and Mm -hmm. it's very... It's very much helping me think about the power of story and and narrative and enduring human qualities and even more so uh, the detrimental aspects of human nature. Thinking about ancestors, as we were talking about, uh, you know, people Mm. not actually changing that much throughout time, (laughs) given these stories, has been... I think, a refreshing way of me thinking about my work going forward, interestingly. But that's what I'm reading right now, so maybe that's a lazy answer just because it's what's at the top of my mind. No, it's awesome. What is the anthology? Do you recall? Here, it's Gustav Schwab's Greek Myths. That's gorgeous. A gorgeous Tashen book, so it's filled with artwork amidst oh my gosh. all the stories, which yeah. is... Yeah. 
That's gorgeous. You know? So what I do I with some it. of my short-term suppression time from the climate crisis. Short-term suppression is is fantastic and so necessary. Like you said, if you can learn to park it, truly it helps. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much, Britt. The book, again, we will put the link on Bookshop. It's available everywhere. This episode will come out, this conversation, uh, when your book comes out, which is fantastic. I'm sure nothing impactful will happen in the time between now and then because everything is totally fine out there. Britt, where can the people follow (laughs) you on the internet besides when they get your book? I have a newsletter, a free newsletter at gendred.substack.com where I share articles, interviews, Q&As, advice columns with other, not advice from me, but, you know, climate experts out there. Uh, and it's, this is focused on the intersection of psychology and the eco-crisis. So it, the tagline is staying sane in the climate crisis. And um, you can sign up there, gendred.substack.com. And furthermore, I'm on Twitter at Britt Ray and Instagram at Jen underscore Dread. Awesome. And thank you so much for sharing my book and having me on. It was such oh a God. nice conversation. Of course. You you are truly um, doing an enormous service. So thank you for leaving synthetic biology in the backseat. We need you. And uh, thank you. Thank you. So thank, thank you for you. your time. Yeah, of course. that's it. We'll talk cool. soon once we fix the whole thing. It'll be great. Okay. That sounds great. Thanks for listening to the show. A reminder, you can send feedback or questions about this episode or some guest recommendations to me at questions at importantnotimportant.com. Links to anything we talked about today are in your show notes in your podcast player. If you want to rep any or your shit giver status, you can find sustainable t-shirts, hoodies, and a variety of coffee delivery vessels in our store at importantnotimportant.com slash store. You can subscribe to our critically acclaimed weekly newsletter for free at newsletter.importantnotimportant.com. Our theme music was composed by Tim Blaine. The show was edited by Anthony Luciani, and the whole episode was produced by Willow Beck. We'll see you next time.